back, everyone, to the Compassionate Activism Podcast. I'm your co-host, Shelley Leverage. And I'm Sky Latimer. And we are going through it, but we're going to be fine. So <laughs> uh, this last week has been challenging in a lot of personal ways and professional ways. So we are working our way through all of that. Um, we also had a really terrible bill come through our state legislature last week. A lot of my action last week was listening to the question period and debates on this bill. And I tweeted about it at the time. It's just the folks who do that day in and day out through the entire session. I'm thinking of people like Nicole McAfee, who we talked with in episode two, and so many other folks who are listening to those debates and keeping track of all of the bills that are going through. And I'm telling you, they are just built different. They have to be because my blood pressure was not okay. And, you know, I'm talking back to my screen. We are fortunate enough that those types of things are are live streamed. So we're able to watch them from afar. But, you know, I was listening and being so upset. And my personal representative is directly affected by this bill. And so a lot of the debate and question period was full of harmful language. And for them to have to sit and not only endure that, but debate against a bill that is actively harming them and language that is actively harming them was a lot. It was a lot to witness. And so I think, you know, I'm not exactly in the best mental health state to be able to endure that every day. So I can only imagine what it's like for people who are listening in on all of this, who are directly affected. I'm not even directly affected by this particular bill and it was still intensely upsetting. Yeah. And the, you know, the journalists, the family members, the folks who are unsure of how they want to identify just, it is, it creates so much more of a bigger ripple than these quote unquote public servants could even imagine. It's really tough. So I, I would love to dedicate a lot more of my time to that sort of oversight, for sure. In the next session in 2023, there's not a ton of session left this year. Thank goodness. There's still plenty of time for them to do a lot of harm, which is not great. And I think they've got some things coming up this week that are going to be pretty terrible. But So this is why we have this conversation about self-care in the work of activism, because if you can't take care of yourself through those intensely emotional and hurtful periods of time, you're not going to make it very long, not in the work anyway. And we need you in the work and I need to be in the work. So I know I want to do a lot of thinking about how I can care for myself over the winter, which is a time that I need to care for myself anyway so that I am in good shape come the beginning of session next February. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. The the winter time, you know, we um there's a meme going around social media that calls it the seasonal saddies and that's absolutely <laughs> true. You know, the um the darkness and so many of us thrive in that outside environment whether it's walking, being in our pool, um, you know, taking our fur babies for walks, being out with the family, that season of refueling is so critical in this work that we get to do. I 
spent this week in diving into a lot more of the environmental justice work and in understanding just the deeper complexities and ties of why environmental change and climate change is so closely tied to environmental justice um, for our indigenous folks, for any sort of minority community or low-income community, um, that pollution, the runoff, the deforestation, the microplastics, you name it, it is going to be directed in a place where they think that their existence has a less lesser value. And so I just spent some time kind of bringing myself up to some of those things that are happening nationally and digging into what I could find that's happening here locally. I shared on social media some resources. There have been some really good podcasts that have come up. Um, we read um, As Long As Grass Grows in our book club, which I really, really loved even though it made me very angry with every single new chapter. And so I'm finding that this is something that is really, really interesting to me. And so I'm definitely looking for more research, books, podcasts, documentaries um, that I will just be digging into because it's fascinating that these past politicians and administrators would have promised land to people and then just, uh, you Can know. Can you imagine? <laughs> Could you Can imagine? Can you imagine? I, as Enneagram nines, we would not be okay if we like if we did not come through on that promise. Listen, it, and then this past week, you know, here in Oklahoma, we had these um, disgusting land run reenactments oh, in these yes. edu- in these elementary schools, and these babes are thinking that they're reenacting something that is fun and playful and something to kiki about when it is horrific and yeah. sinister, and so. Um, and you, yeah. you were not, you were older when you moved here from the East Coast, yeah. right? Yeah. So thankfully I never had to. <laughs> I grew up in Oklahoma and I grew up in rural Oklahoma at that. So we definitely had land run reenactments. We had parades, like lots of celebration over settling. And looking back on it now, I'm like, I don't feel bad that I participated in it necessarily because I was a kid and I didn't, nobody had taught me any differently. Yeah. But I'm so glad that my daughter's school doesn't do that. They celebrated Earth Day. So for those who don't know, Land Run Day and Earth Day coincide in Oklahoma. And so her school celebrated Earth Day. They had picnic lunch outside I'm sure they were talking about all kinds of, you know, my daughter gets in the car and she had school lunch that day instead of a home packed lunch. And she shows me the. she's like, mom, look at the container this came in. And it was one of those clear plastic clamshell to go containers. Mm-hmm. And she's like, look at this on earth day, which <laughs> was a, <laughs> was a proud mom moment. But I mean, she had a point. How are you going to give us this? all this plastic on earth day anyway. So now I know for next year that maybe I ought to just send her with a lunch so that we don't incur that plastic debt. But so I'm, I was grateful that her school doesn't do that, Mm -hmm. but I was still sad about all the schools that do. And I have to imagine that that is a total mind fuck for any indigenous kids. 
on their family's land. Right. We definitely <laughs> had indigenous kids in my school. One of my best friends is indigenous. So mm-hmm. I don't even know what that must be like for them. Yeah. Land back. Damn. <laughs> All day, every day. We got to figure out how that works. Hey, y'all, we want to talk to somebody about land back in a big way. So if you know somebody that is the subject matter expert in land back activism, holla at us. Let us know. Welcome to the podcast, Jossie G. We have our first Woo-hoo! out of towner, and I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> we are going to have a righteous conversation today. I can already tell. So, Jossie, why don't you go ahead and give people a little bit of background about who you are, where we're talking to you from, all that good stuff. Hello, I am Jossie or Jocelyn G, and mainly I am a content producer. But I mainly use content production to activate my community around these multimedia campaigns. And that is really my favorite thing to do across channels, whether it comes to cannabis, environmentalism, or just all social impact sort of um, spaces. Because, again, I don't really believe in limiting myself to just like one field of activism because I just don't think that's natural for people like we were saying how hearing people's dogs on their their zoom they're just humans humans care about lots of different things and it's weird if we if we just are like I only care about this one thing and so Mm -hmm. I've just found that very freeing and liberating to incorporate my activism across all different types of my activism instead of just This is my cannabis activism. This is my environmental activism. And that's just been really beautiful to like merge those. And I recently worked as a menu manager at a cannabis subscription box, which is not really related to activism, but it is in the cannabis space. And through that, I definitely gained a lot more knowledge about the business side of cannabis and how things are functioning when there are no considerations to social impact, equity, uh, or when it comes down to profit in cannabis as opposed to social impact. And that was a very, very enlightening experience. And so I'm no longer working there anymore. I am now a content producer at a social impact creative agency, which is a lot better for me, a lot better. Hey now. Um, Exactly. (laughs) Um, But it's, it was definitely a really big learning experience because I was also writing product descriptions and I was writing copy and I was sort of directing them, oh, this is how you should do these social media campaigns during XYZ diversity month, like pride month or um, Latin heritage month. And just their sort of approaches to it was very transaction based and very focused on capitalism and monetary value. Whereas that is just not what I tend to consider when I talk about activism, as opposed to like drawing community towards a branded offering. I'm almost building community around that branded Mm -hmm. offering. That is more important to me than just selling a product because I don't feel like for me, things are about impact at the end of the day. And if the product or the brand or the intention behind the project is just not in alignment with having a great impact on my communities, then I just don't see the point in 
involving myself in projects. And that's another thing I realized. You got to reserve your energy for what you really care about and what really needs your attention most because people will always ask for help, especially in these spaces. And it's so hard to not, not even say no, but just say, I don't have the capacity for this right now. And setting those boundaries for yourself is so, so important to me. Um, because I continue to see how many of my friends, especially in cannabis and environmentalism, are burnt out from the news, from the the fight, from all of the, the things that come along with being an activist, which to me, activism just means caring for your community and caring for yourself. It's, it's activism is not, it's, it's about so many different things. Activism is, I still, it's funny that you, this episode is about destigmatizing the word ag- activism and activist, because I still have issues with the word activist and activism. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. less the associations that the actual word has and more the people that are associated with using it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the people who call themselves activists are not activists. I often find if you have to call yourself an activist, you're not an activist. I am much more a person of actions speak louder than words because people can talk all day long, but if they're not following that up with actions, I really it's 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 not it's not meaningful to me. And I I find that the most common that people who call themselves activists or corporations who call themselves activists are very performative and very focused on words, not action and impact. Yeah. So in that way, that sounds very similar to the conversation that we have had around the term ally. And I'm so grateful that so many people are speaking up now and saying, "Mm, you don't actually get to call yourself that. That's something that someone uses to describe you if they have seen you actually engaged in that behavior. It's not something you put in your Twitter bio. It's not something that you toss out in a hashtag. And I've been guilty of that before I was educated on it. So it's really interesting to apply that same notion to the term activist, but also because not just people using it who shouldn't be, well, it's still people using it who shouldn't be, but it's people who are degrading it and turning it into something that's evil that it's not Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) it's that same thing like they will take a word and use it to where it's meaningless it has lost its definition and instead means this thing that they've decided means same thing with woke same thing with now groomer and pedophile like they're just taking this word and making it something that it's not words matter it's so true that's why I hate the word influencer, <laughs> even though it's been in too many of my contracts. I kind of hate it. I hate it so much. I, I really it feels do. icky, doesn't it? It's icky because the people who mo- mainly go by influencers are the opposite of the groups of people I want to be associated with. But when influencers in this many of my actual contracts, I cannot not call myself somewhat of an influencer. And so it's that, that you, what you mentioned about hashtags, like, Yes, it's less ideal to like tag activist or cannabis activists in posts, but also at the same time, that's how you reach audiences. That's how you right. reach people who like don't know 
exactly how to find the content they're looking for. And the easiest way for them to do that is key terms. And so that's sort of where the term activist actually comes in handy. Similar to the term, which uh, another few terms that I have issues with is BIPOC and the sort of umbrella yeah. terminology of that. That's I guess that that is another factor of it. The umbrella terminology that activist and influencer and BIPOC represents now is just too vague to be anything meaningful. And I think that's that's what it is, is people have taken the meaning and the power out of the word activist. And it's sort of like we need to reclaim that by redefining and reimagining what activism is or what it basically, I think it's what it already is. It's just, it's not how, it's marketing, it's optics. Like we're not talking about the activism that we're doing that is less focused on performative action. I think the issue is a lot of activism is very public facing when it should not be. It should always be community facing, which doesn't necessarily mean public facing. Yeah. And community led. And I just feel like most initiatives are not community led, not even with input by community. And so that is really where activism often breaks down is these these big institutions, organizations who say they really want to help. But then when it comes to understanding how to holistically support activists, not such a great balance there. Well, and I that has me thinking about how you know, when you say the term activist to a certain group of people, what comes to mind for them is Malcolm X or Dr. King or anyone else that that term was used against to create a boogeyman or to create some sort of Mm -hmm. fear thing for people to vote the way they want them to or act in a way that they want them to. Anyway, to, to other these people that are honestly just trying to create good things for their community. Dr. King wasn't out there for his health. His people were hurting. It is infuriating to me having all of these conversations as someone who grew up with kind of like the idea of like, be a person of your word and say what you mean and mean what you say. I mean it when I say defund and abolish the police. I mean that. But now this deinvestment, this divestment, I meant what I said when I mean that. We're talking about the same thing, but I need to put it in a, a pretty box so that you you don't have this fear around it, this scarcity. Like you have the opportunity to innovate and imagine. You know, like when slavery was abolished, they they thought that that was wild, that it was absolutely bananas. That the world was going to end. Right. I know. That is the most frustrating thing is people acting like we've never had transformative change. And then when I bring up the transformative change of the past, they're like, no, that's not relevant. That's completely different. Dream bigger. That's that's the, the hardest part is people who you ask to dream bigger and they just don't want to. Well, they're scared. They're scared. They're scared to, and they're they're scared to imagine a future and a world beyond the limitations that come with. Like the, it's funny because when you, I read the um, thing about uh, how destigmatizing the term activist. What I, as soon as what I thought was social justice warrior, 
that that term yeah. is exactly what activists used to mean, but now has <laughs> horribly negative connotations. So no one bad. ever calls themselves that because it's just, <laughs> it's a gross, yeah, there's, there, no one wants to call themselves a social justice warrior. But I think a few years ago, that may not have been the case. And I think that's yeah. really interesting how we demonize caring about our community. We demonize right. caring about people. If you care about someone and you're trying to question the status quo and make change, they genuinely are so uncomfortable with you caring about building a better future that they are mad at you for, for questioning. You know what I think part of that is, is that it very directly holds up a mirror to them and they don't like mm -hmm. what they see. They don't like mm -hmm. the fact that they are scared to do any of this. They don't like the fact that they are scared of certain people. They know that they have treated people horribly and they also know that that's really not right, but they've bought into the fear that has allowed them to feel okay about feeling that way. Mm -hmm. But when you are out there doing the thing and like showing them that it is possible to care about other people, even if they're not like you, they see that reflection and it, it really freaks them out. I have been grappling with that with my family and mm. um, because I, as much as I love them, we have very different ideology when it comes to abolition and yeah. social transformation in general. And that's very, very challenging because I was saying a few days ago that sometimes they, my family makes me lose hope because those are exactly oh, the kind of people that I want to try to reach in terms yeah. of like talking about abolition, talking about climate change. And then for particularly my father um, to just be like, he doesn't care. He's not interested. He'll counter everything I bring up with, with some point defending XYZ institution or XYZ group of people in power. And it's just really, really exhausting. And I definitely have realized more and more as I go on the need to like pick my battles, but also just pick my allies. Like there are going to be people who you surround yourself with who either are going to reinforce what you care about or tell you that it's not valuable. And unfortunately, family can often be one or the other. And I found, especially with people who work in these social impact spaces, it's usually the other. Um, and so it's really important to surround yourself with people who will reinforce that what you're doing is meaningful work, that what you're doing is having an impact, that what you're doing, people, other people support and understand. And so that's another thing I realized is if you are someone who wants to be an activist or do work that activists do, you need a support system. You you really just do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about that while you were saying all that, that really reinforces the need for community around all of this work because so many, I mean, you need community in anything that you do, especially anything that's difficult, but so many people who get into any sort of activism related work do lose family connections. Yeah, We talked with an activist just two episodes ago who her family was very supportive initially. And then they were like, okay, it's cool if you want to do this, but you got to move out. Like mm -hmm. you got to leave. And so then, you know, you lose some of those family connections. So you have to have, because we're communal creatures, mm -hmm. whether you're an introvert, extrovert, 
to whatever degree, we're still communal human beings, whether that's a digital community or a physical in-person community, like you have to have that. So I know activating your community is a big part of what you do. How have you, have you found any strategies to bring people together to help people tap into community when they don't have any already established? Yes. The most interesting part is that was literally me three years ago. I dropped out of college because I was hating it and having a horrible time and it was not serving me. And so I left college and was like, okay, well, what do I actually care about? Because I don't want to just do nothing and not figure out what I what I want to do going forward. And so I said, okay, I care about community. Let's just focus on 100% community and go from there. And then from there, I went more into like cannabis and environmentalism and queerness and these different specific areas of interest to me. But it was first all based around community. And that's really what I've gotten all of my opportunities from as well is by leaning on community, by reaching out to community, not I really don't believe in like building relationships to use people or to like for a specific goal other than to build a relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. If I'm very about reciprocal relationships and so if we are able to help each other, which is usually the the case for most people, then I am definitely interested in that. But I'm also much more about just building relationships for the sake of building relationships and getting to know a person. And that has served me incredibly, incredibly well, because just communicate with people, tell them what's going on with your life, ask what's going on with them. You'll learn so much, especially if they're also activists, which is mainly what I was doing is communicating with other activists as well as just other creatives, other researchers, other people in these spaces who may not necessarily identify as activists, but are still doing some of the work that's relevant to what I care about. Um, And that was mainly the way I found activating community is just incorporate what you care about. It's actually really frustrating, but if I don't post a lifestyle photo or a photo of me as the first slide, Yes. The post performs way worse overall, uh, even if the content is just like exactly the same. And so that has been very frustrating, but it made, makes me realize how deeply people want to hear your story from your narrative and yes. not, yeah. not, they want to hear it from you. They don't want to hear like a person talking at them. They want you talking to them directly and that is what lifestyle organic content has done for me. And I don't think that's necessarily the right choice for all groups, people, brands, activists, because organic content just doesn't work for some people. It just doesn't. But for especially activists, I think it is probably the most powerful way to create change because people care a lot more when you're talking about something you have lived experience with. Yeah. Care when you have expertise about what you're talking about, when you have community connections. And that is where community comes in is like community is where you can get that expertise. It's where you can get those connections. And if you don't know about something, you can just recommend community to go do that thing that you were off. That's what I do all the time. I get offered a lot of various opportunities that may not fit me the best, um, but then I forward them to people who are a part of my community or I forward them to people who may know 
people who <laughs> like are fit for that opportunity. And that's another way to just really build community is by sharing opportunity and sharing in the growth and sharing in the the glow up and the activism and the the community success. Like that is most important to me is that people are giving and taking always together. Like it's, I don't believe that community should just give and person should just take. I don't believe that a person should just give and community should take. It always has to be both or else the relationship's going to break. Yes. Reciprocity, man, always (laughs) I'm going to save that clip of you talking about people wanting to see your face on social and just blast that out to our clients every quarter or so. Um, That's a struggle. (laughs) They don't Uh, believe us either. It's like, no, nobody wants to see me. And like, no, that's your fear talking. They do want to see you because they chose to follow you. So they want to see you and what you're up to. But yeah, community is literally how we have booked every guest on this podcast. It is people we know, or like with you, you're in this communal group with Sky, mm-hmm. where she was able to put out an ask, hey, here's what we're doing. Who want who who's up for it? And now we found one of our people. Yes, we did. <laughs> let's um let's shift a little bit into uh cannabis a little bit and the campaigns that you run. Are you finding that anything is connecting most? and converting people to being supporters of um, decriminalization and destigmatization of cannabis? Is it storytelling? Is it uh, statistics? Is it just your personal um, experience? How are, how are you changing hearts with your campaigns? Great question. Definitely. So personally, I don't have tons of lived experience in the war on drugs when it comes to people I know being impacted by that. And so I don't feel like it's necessarily the best place for me to speak about the war on drugs, unless I'm just amplifying voices who actually have lived experience with that. So that's not really an area I talk so much about unless it's talking about like destigmatization and let's talk about how to destigmatize cannabis, but less from like a legal perspective, because I'm trying to work on more policy activations, but it's it's very challenging to learn all of those things. Yeah. And so mainly my focus is on creativity and inspiring people to have better relationships with cannabis. Mm-hmm. And whether that be an individual relationship with the, the plant or a community relationship with the plant. That has been my constant fight is to destigmatize cannabis, the, the term stoner, the term weed, all of these, these terms that people are really uncomfortable talking about, unless it's in a very specific context that is not focused on community and intention. It's focused on very cannabis. Yeah, let's get high. Blah, 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 blah. It's like the bro <laughs> vibe of cannabis. The surfer vibe, yeah. The surfer vibe of cannabis. What's so interesting for me is it took an occurrence of cancer for me to finally get over the personal, um, I don't know, shame, not shame, but like, well, you've been programmed to think, right. And that I was tweeting out this morning, you know, so we're recording this on 420. What's up y'all. Hey, Um, so I was tweeting out this (laughs) morning, you know, shout out to everyone who has managed to deprogram themselves from Nancy's dare propaganda. 
And <laughs> Josh it, nodding very, very prominently right now. Um, my it, family. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, gets into a whole conversation of the war on drugs is racist and all that. But mm-hmm. it literally took cancer for me to feel okay being more public about the fact that like, I use this, I consume this. It is very helpful. Mm-hmm. When I was in chemo, there were days where I couldn't taste things yeah, and I didn't have an appetite unless I smoked. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, I can taste things a little bit better. I don't understand that physiology, but mm-hmm. it is what it is. And I actually felt like eating something. So you can't tell me that this is not medicinal. Nobody can tell me that. Ever. Right. And mm-hmm. not to mention all of the assistance it gives for my anxiety. By the end of the day, I am just this wound ball of anxiety from, you know, stress about work, life, things going on in the world. And a girl needs to sleep. So <laughs> this is how I yes. unwind at night. Like some people have a glass of wine and nobody thinks anything of that. But cannabis is so much safer yeah. than alcohol. Mm-hmm. And Not I don't poison. deny anybody. I don't <laughs> deny anybody their alcohol if that's your thing. Like as long as you're being safe about it, do it. But yeah, it took something really extreme for me to flip that switch personally. So I can imagine it's pretty difficult for folks who don't even don't even use it. That's that's the beauty of it of my life though. You may I forgot about it until you just reminded me. I am disabled and I have chronic health issues and um I had an undiagnosed chronic illness for the first 20 years of my life. Oh, and I was man, highly drawn gosh. towards cannabis. So didn't know why um that was a really big shame I had to grapple with as to why is this making me feel so much better? Why does this yeah. improve my what's life wrong so with me? much? That's that's the that's the most fucked up question. What's wrong with me to benefit from medicine? Mm-hmm. That's that's what I was yeah. asking myself and how I was shaming myself. It's hard. It's hard to undo that stigmatization, especially when it. I mean, for what age range are your parents in? Sixties. Okay, so yeah, they were fully brought up in the. Um, oh, what's it called? Reefer Madness. Yes. Time of life. And mm-hmm. <laughs> God, I just laugh anytime I think about that. But yeah, I think a lot of people were deeply programmed by all of that mm-hmm. narrative and the war on drugs mm-hmm. and tying that in with their any racism or biases that they have against mm-hmm. black folks like mm-hmm. turning that war on drugs into what that turned it into mm-hmm. I think did not help at all for sure and that's I think one of the most frustrating parts about it is that the people who are consuming cannabis are not at all the people who are in jail for cannabis they're listen that's a whole nother that I'm glad you brought that up because that's <laughs> where my mind was going to is when are we going to start getting some people the fuck out of jail Mm-hmm. For shit that they should not have been, and and re, like giving them every resource that they need to yes. try and cope with that trauma that was inflicted on them for mm-hmm. no good reason. Mm-hmm. Like they need to be resourced to the hilt. I just find it absolutely horrific how we treat people who are experiencing incarceration because I just, it's the closest 
that I see to modern day slavery because you are yeah. literally allowed to be forced to do labor for pennies. You are yeah. giving your meals. You are told where you can go stay and live. You are told what you can do. And you're basically controlled from the day, from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep. Yeah. And you me, are reprimanded harshly if you step out of those. Exactly. Rules. And the fact that most people who are going to jail are for cannabis are black while the people who are mm -hmm. consuming cannabis are not like completely black. So it's just ridiculous statistics. Yeah. For small amounts to mm -hmm. lift. For super small amounts. And there are people who are black politicians who will publicly smoke weed or do something that with related to cannabis. And that's all okay. But then when it comes to people who are not famous, who don't have millions of dollars Listen. to spend. Say that. You can rob a bank, go mm -hmm. to jail, get out, mm -hmm. and live your life. If you go to jail for a small amount of cannabis, you come out, you can't apply for student loans, mm -hmm. you can't get rental, you like can't rent places. Like so much about this policy needs to change, and so many people need to be given full access to participate in life back. Like, mm -hmm. what? I know that y'all understand this. This is not rocket science. Must dumbass just put people on the moon, okay? Like, this is not hard. Mm -hmm. Let's, like, care for our people. That's the hard part, though, is convincing people that it matters to care about people. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who will always care. And then there are people who have power and resources who as a community don't care like they they're trained not to care about those things yeah. and so you have to this is what i've done this is interesting part of other side of compassionate activism speak to your audience it it really like as much as my compassion drives me in every other conversation when i talk corporate i never talk about it from the lens of compassion from the lens of morality legality i talk about it how does this help their bottom line how does this help their public opinion how does this help them get to a better place with their brand company offering etc and that's what part of what compassionate activism is to me is knowing how to speak to your audience because some people will not be moved by compassion and as much as i want to like write those people off as unimportant in the conversation a lot of those people do have significant power and influence and so i do find it part of my job or part of my purpose to convince those people why we need transformation and transformation now and why that will benefit them even if it's not benefits that I find particularly valuable but I know they will yeah yeah that's a conversation Sky and I have a lot is meeting people where they are mm -hmm. and sometimes meeting people where they are is not a great place but it's where mm -hmm. they are mm -hmm. so sometimes people won't walk through a wide open door sometimes they got to kind of peek through first to make sure <laughs> They're not going to like fall down into a crater, but yeah, I, I am one of those people who feel like any measure of progress is progress, even if it's imperfect. And you know, it, I understand the argument against incremental progress because of all the people it leaves out while they're waiting for their increment, mm -hmm. but it, you can't always get from point A to point B without going through those little stops along the way. Absolutely yeah. agreed. And Another thing about being activist, you're both doing the sprint and the marathon at the same time. And that's always <laughs> that's how it's going to be. 
that's always how it's going to be. We're always going to be doing the sprint and the marathon. You can take a break from one of them at, at one point, but it's it's always going to be both. And that's sort of how I've come to view it is that I'm moving the needle slowly and then I'm moving the needle quickly sometimes. And it's mostly going to be slowly and mm-hmm. it's mostly going to be in ways that may maybe not are immediately transformative. And so that's another thing is I'm very, very good about seeing the small and big picture and not just the small and big picture, but how they interact and how they intersect and like combine. And so that's what I'm always thinking about is like a few months down the line, how will this represent this brand, this portfolio, this offering, this community? And what will, what kind of people will that draw? What kind of attention will that draw? And That is what you have to consider when it comes to activism. I'm going to bring in a real throwback reference here, but it's relevant to me currently because we've been, so we as a family have been watching the most recent, but old seasons of DuckTales. Mm -hmm. So like the 2018 ish version of it. Um, I don't, did you, did y'all watch DuckTales in either? I did not watch it, but I have heard of it. So it's actually really pretty good. I, I highly recommend it. But so the three kids, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, they each have their own personalities, right? Huey is kind of the kind of the nerdy guy. He's really into their version of Boy Scouts and uh, all of that. And then Dewey is the adventure guy. Louie is the guy that can see all the angles, He's kind of a schemer and he can get into a lot of trouble, but he sees angles that people don't see. And so when you were talking about combining short-term and long-term visualization of an issue, that's sort of what that brought up for me is seeing the angles and not a lot of people can do that. So that is a superpower for sure. Yeah. But being able to sit down and say, how does this affect me now? And how will it affect me later? And not turning that into an or conversation is really interesting to me. And that's exactly how I think I've inspired so many people is my absolute refusal to submit to binaries. I just hate binaries because I find them more unnatural than otherwise. And similar to what I was talking about, about seeing long term and short term, I just naturally think in networks and systems. That's how I'm that's what I'm drawn towards. That's how. I always perceive the world. That's what my perspective is grounded in, is networks and systems. So it's how things interact and those things themselves rather than just one or the other. And so for me, it's more challenging not to think in systems. And I think that is definitely a gift I have. Um, But it's also frustrating because if you are one of those people who thinks in systems, it's like trying to explain a vision of the future that you don't have. Like, it's, it's almost like you're trying to explain, like, this is my vision for the future and this is how I'm working to get to it. But especially when you're as ADHD, OCD brain as me, it can be really easy to not explain myself well <laughs> What when it comes to, like, what my actual vision is. And so part of what I always try to do is wait until all the pieces have, like, come into place until I actually speak about the thing I'm doing. And that's something I need to get better at is because I don't think we need to have like a secret hidden process or 
I don't think I need to hide that like I'm trying things. It's okay to like try and not succeed. But I do think there's that instinct that like I don't want to show me not doing well at things. And I think it's really important not to be afraid of that and to be like, let's do my let's do this growth publicly so I can get the feedback from my community about what I can do better, what I'm doing great and what they want some help with. Like it's, it's, there are so many different angles to always think about an issue from. And that is one of my favorite things because it's just naturally how my brain works. And so I'm able to be able to bring up those angles in conversation with people who know what I'm talking about and are interested in the same, same things and willing to strategize on it is such a gift. Yeah, that's another one of those cultural things that we're having to undo right now, too, is the willingness to mess up and not be perfect, not even just failure versus success. But, you know, if somebody is on a journey to like an anti-racism journey, Mm -hmm. they will stay quiet for fear of saying the wrong thing instead of saying the wrong thing and allowing people to correct them and Mm -hmm. then acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. So that's something that Sky talks with people about a lot is you're not always going to get it right. You're mm-hmm. going to mess up, but you need to let that be okay. Yes. Failure is okay. It's just learning. Failure is just another word for learning and another word yeah. for growing. And I have so much issue with the word failure as a result of like my personal associations with it. But I think mm-hmm. lots of people have that as we've all been made to feel failures when we haven't even started something. Like we're yeah. we're made to feel like failures before we've even dove into something so that we're scared to start stuff. And that is a chronic issue is the the just fear, the 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 chronic fear. And so, oh, I forgot to tie this back, but basically because I'm disabled and have chronic health issues, that means I'm really easily able to talk to my family members from a position of you have no idea what it's like to deal with decades of chronic pain and then to have something help you. So you can't come to me and tell me you know about cannabis and how it helps or doesn't help until you've had something, an experience like that. Tying that back to that, but yes. Check yourself. Check yourself. (laughs) And, you know, in that conversation about, um, you know, people getting it wrong and that fear and that failure, like with compassionate activism, we get to change that narrative. We call you in versus calling you out. Like we are seeking to educate, to mm-hmm. change the ways that you are programmed. We're seeking to to dismantle all of it, you know, like, mm-hmm. and we can do all of this firmly rooted in the love that we have for knowledge and for our community and for a better future. And by the way, we are not always going to get it right either. Mm -hmm. Sky and I may be leading these conversations, Mm -hmm. but this is our journey too. (laughs) We've just decided that it's okay. Like at some point, you know, when we're down on season eight of this podcast or whatever, we may look back at a conversation and be like, yikes. (laughs) Yikes, You probably will. You probably will. Like a few years down the line. This is all part of our experience and part of us actively working to be better and to do better for the community, various communities at that. And um, that's what I love about compassionate activism. It's an invitation. It's not, it's not not like you have to be this or that you have to do this or that. It's like, 
join us. Like this is a community that you can be a part of. You can contribute to, we'll help you. Like it's that reciprocal relationship that we all love. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Casper? Like the ghost movie? Yeah. Not in a really long time. With Christina Ricci. Yeah. Not in a really long time, but yes, yes. Why I bring that up is, can we keep you? Yes, you can. Yes. I will be your Casper. I will be your little ghost. Man, this, I tell you what, I had the best feeling coming into this conversation. Like since you scheduled it, Sky and I have seriously been so excited the whole time. And our our office mate, who is a graphic designer, helped us pull the background out of that picture oh. with you on the couch blowing smoke because we really wanted it. Like everything was just falling into place. So, yeah, Sky, do you want to do the rapid fire questions now? Yes. They're not actually rapid fire. They're just five <laughs> basic questions that we have. I got you. Uh, before we get into that real quick, tell our listeners where you are sharing all this knowledge from and if cannabis is legal where you are. I am in Los Angeles, so cannabis is highly legal where I am. It's very celebrated where I am, um, which is nice. beautiful. Um, and you can find me on Golden Green G, which is on Instagram, um, spelled Golden Green and then G as in G and two E's. And that is where you can find me and all me doing all of my fun. Here are some cool cannabis products. Here are some education. <laughs> Here's some social impact. Let's go. All of your non-influencer influencing. Yes, exactly. Non-influencer influencing. That's what you get. We've got to find a new word. That word has bugged us for a long time too, but. I I really don't like it, but it's, it's. Reimagine the word. Reimagine it. (laughs) Okay. So first question, I'm going to switch it up just a little bit because it is Mm -hmm. 420 today. What is your munchie Ooh. snack of choice? Chocolate. Chocolate. Yes. Always chocolate. Yeah. I yes, have been yes. eating, like, even though I don't like the brand Hershey's remotely and I have tons of issues with them, I do love their rice, crispy, like, chocolate bars that have, like, their mini M&Ms in them. Those have mm. been so good to me. I have this, this thing where I just, like, oh, my other favorite – uh, munchie snack is uh, sour cream and cheese ruffles. Mm. Oh, Those yes. So Tops. Yes. That big, big party size bag too. Like yes. I have to buy yes. those in bulk. <laughs> I buy those <laughs> and the, my tiny yogurt drinks in, in bulk. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I Listen, Hershey's is gluten-free by and large, and that's something mm-hmm. that is meaningful for me. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a lot of choice when it comes to yeah. what chocolate yeah. I get to have. So I actually I really enjoy Hershey's as well. Me too. They're they're so good for that. Like I just want chocolate. Just give it to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next question. What are you reading right now? I love reading smutty romances and nothing else. I don't read. We have so many friends that do that. <laughs> yes. I literally I refuse to read anything challenging or like really meaningful other than like the max I'll do is like really intense political romances or like mysteries paranormal whatever that kind of thing other than that I read enough real stuff in my my daily life I don't need to read anything else (laughs) like that I love how much women in particular I haven't heard a lot of guys talking about this but hopefully there's some of them out there too I love how people are just 
owning the fact that they love romance novels mm-hmm. and they are not afraid to admit it. We have several yes. friends that are, that is their genre. That is what mm-hmm. they really enjoy. And that was really good for me to see because I was brought up with that being like taboo. That's not actually <laughs> literature or, and I say brought up, that wasn't like anything my parents ever taught me. It's mm-hmm. just sort no, of the just cultural like, yes, raising yes. Mm-hmm. of romance isn't real literature and Danielle Steele isn't talented. And I mean, anybody that can knock out that many books, I'm sorry, <laughs> they've, they've got a skill. Yeah, <laughs> they've also that. got a, a clear success story there if they're probably right. on those bestsellers lists. And there's nothing wrong with checking the hell out of reality for a while. If Mm -hmm. you want to go read something that takes you to a better place, do it. Toodaloo. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Anybody. And my my TV version of that is Scooby-Doo. Any any Scooby Doo? Is that what you're watching right now? TV shows, I I, like right now. Always, just always. Like it's just I love watching Scooby Doo. I have both the Boomerang account, so I can watch all of the Scooby Doo movies and TV shows on there, which is like most of them. And then there are some which aren't on there because of either licensing issues or it's just like a different company who made it. And so I also have access to those because I'm just a Scooby Doo. Fiend. I love it. So DuckTales is Scooby-Doo-esque. Just in the, there's always some sort of adventure conflict sort of deal. And there's a family unit instead of a friend unit. Um, I can't really equate characters because it doesn't quite work that way. But there are some similarities. I got you. And I'm definitely going to check that out as one of my I, I apparently am a DuckTales proponent now, so I'm just going to add <laughs> that to my bio when we get off the call. <laughs> so our next question was, what are you watching? Mm-hmm. So I like Scooby-Doo, but I also used to – I watch a lot of Reno 911. Okay. <laughs> That's the only <laughs> propaganda I will watch. Well, yeah. Because it's I'm also ready. like – continuously making fun of them and right that's that's that that's that beauty (laughs) um uh, question four uh how are you sleeping really well actually I since starting my latest job I've been going to bed super early what I call grandma hours which means like sometimes eight o'clock but mainly like nine o'clock or something nine maybe ten or something and I just wake up really early so I can take my dog out for a nice little morning walk and then get started on my daily workflow yeah I love that I'm I'm a constant work in progress when it comes to going to bed earlier I'm I'm getting there slowly but surely. Like I am constantly disappointed when I don't get into bed by 10:30, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is most nights honestly, mm-hmm. but at least the desire is there where it didn't used to be there before. I used to have really bad insomnia, so I just couldn't function like as in I wouldn't yeah. sleep before 3 a.m. most nights. Yeah, but- well, and we talk about sleep, you know, a lot of what we talk about in compassionate activism is the self-care side of things, mm-hmm. because if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't be taking care of other people for very long. Mm-hmm. So in order to sustain yourself in this work, sleep is like the number one thing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. We've heard both sides. Either people are sleeping really well or it's just trash. Yes, there's no between. There's truly yeah. no between, especially for, I think, people who are in our spaces were either like oh, I'm like actually resting well lately or I, I haven't slept in 10 years and I'm here today. <laughs> 84 years. 
<laughs> but it's so true. Like the self-care aspect of compassionate activism. That's why I'm like, uh, compassionate activism is self-care. It's also community care. Like self-care yeah. and community care are both the other. In like, tandem. Yeah. It's exactly because if like you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of your community, you can't take care of your community at all like it's not going to feel very good for taking care of yourself Mm -hmm. yeah and part of community care by the way is making sure that those folks are taking care of themselves Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that too like making sure that people can be self-sufficient within their community I think is a really Mm -hmm. big aspect of community that people just don't realize is like built into most compassionate activism but is not built into lots of not compassionate activism we'll say yeah self-serving activism Mm -hmm. last question what is the most memorable or powerful piece of activism you've ever seen been a part of or read about historically that's a really good question I would say like this may not be my favorite activism example of all time but like particularly in something I was directly involved in I really really enjoyed working for intersectional environmentalist because a like that's where I met Leah Thomas who I worked with on the green girls collective which is a what's a cannabis adjacent brand that was focused on destigmatizing it although because of cannabis issues that was, you know, not so easy to execute. Um, But I like making that connection with environmentalism and cannabis. I think that has been my favorite aspect of like activism that I've learned just because the intersectionality of it all is, is what I'm most drawn towards the combining what you care about, combining your passions, seeing the world as a holistic universe instead of just like little pieces of issues or little single off islands of people like bringing it all together is I think my favorite like sort of narrative of activism because I think coalition building is the way forward like it's the only way we're going to actually get meaningful change to happen because right now we have all of these groups who are very have very powerful stories and very powerful voices but we're not necessarily working in unison with each other because I mean there's a variety of reasons we we can't we're struggling to work together but I think that's the only way that we can really overcome the majority who like they're not the actual majority but they have the majority of the power and influence well like, they're very over- loud yeah, they're very loud. They're very loud. They have a lot they're of They're holding money. all the bullhorns. Yes, exactly. And so it's like to overcome that, that's where we need to come together. And that's, I think, one of the best things intersectional environmentalists taught me is how to tie it all together. How you mm. can bring people together around more than just one issue, but around a series of issues, around a, a, a topic and not just a single issue area. Yeah. I love but- that. Mm, so good. If it's not intersectional, we don't want it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it's not accessible, we don't want it. Listen. That too. All of that. All of that. <laughs> Joss, it has been so, so wonderful talking to you. You too. This was like We might so have wonderful. to do this again. Oh, I'm so down. I am super, super down. Passionate Activism Podcast is produced by Folded Owl and hosted by Shelley Leverage and Sky Latimer. Music by Santiago Ramones. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Folded Owl. Transcripts and show notes for all of our episodes are available on our website at foldedowl.com forward slash pod. Thank you.